Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Chris Romig. Chris is a technology transfer officer for the Exploration Technology Office at NASA's Johnson Space Center. Chris and his team are responsible for curating the intellectual property developed at the Johnson Space Center from the disclosure of new innovations through the patent process and then the eventual licensing of those inventions. Additionally, Chris guides the team to enhance crosstalk between NASA innovators while improving technology development collaborations through knowledge exchange. He also provides strategic leadership for the Exploration Technology Office for the improved integration of the Johnson Space Center's advanced technology development activities, technology transfer, and strategic partnerships. Chris previously functioned as the branch chief for the Energy Conversion Systems branch at the Johnson Space Center, where he oversaw in-situ research utilization technologies, the design, development, and testing of advanced power generation systems, and pyrotechnic devices for human spaceflight applications. Chris also served as an associate branch lead for instrument and payload systems engineering at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. Payload Systems Engineering provided systems engineering support to both outside and in-house Goddard Space Flight Center instruments while hosting payload projects through all phases of the project lifecycle. One of Chris's focuses within the branch was the development and coordination of model-based systems engineering tools and capabilities for the Goddard Space Flight Center. Chris has also worked at NASA headquarters as a deputy chief engineer for the Exploration Systems Mission Directorate in the Office of Chief Engineer. In this capacity, Chris was responsible for providing program lifecycle and systems engineering expertise for human exploration programs and projects such as the Constellation and Commercial Orbital Transportation Services Program. Prior to his work at NASA headquarters, Chris spent more than nine years as a propulsion engineer and project manager slash systems engineer at the Johnson Space Center. He supported the space shuttle program and worked to develop a cryogenic propulsion component and system-level technologies for future exploration missions. Chris has a BS in aerospace engineering from Penn State University, a MS in space architecture from the University of Houston, a graduate certificate in systems engineering from Caltech, and an MS in systems engineering from the University of Southern California. And with that extremely impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Chris. Great. Thank you, Lisa, for having me. It's great to be here. Well, thanks so much again, Chris, for taking part in the podcast. And the way I generally like to start the podcast off is by asking my guests about their journey to tech transfer. So, Chris, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up at NASA's Johnson Space Center? Sure, absolutely. Um, You know, like a lot of people growing up in the U.S., I, I really wanted to be an astronaut. I was just, 
enamored with NASA and the space program growing up. So I went to school to get a degree in aerospace engineering, was very fortunate to wind up getting a job at Johnson Space Center right out of college. Um, and, and through that work, I really started doing cryogenic rocket propulsion as my first engineering job. And in that, I got the opportunity to work with small businesses and companies who were just incredibly inspiring to work with. Loved the energy that they brought to the team. They just loved NASA, what was going on in the program. And so that really kind of touched me in a way that, you know, I had not expected when my dream was to work for NASA was to understand how NASA really impacts the community and the businesses that partner and work with us on a regular basis. You know, fast forward a number of years, I was working at Goddard Space Flight Center and had the opportunity to do a rotational assignment in the tech transfer office there. And that really opened my eyes even more about how NASA technologies help people here on Earth. So we talk a lot about the various spinoffs and things that have been invented by NASA and that are in our daily life, but I never really saw how it all worked, you know, the machinery behind behind the curtain. And so that opportunity to work in tech transfer at Goddard helped me really see the importance and the value of getting NASA technology disseminated out into the public domain as widely as possible. I since moved back to Johnson Space Center and, you know, was asked several years later to lead the tech transfer office at JSC. And because of my background with what I had done at Goddard, because of my experience working with small businesses throughout my career, I really just jumped at that opportunity. I was really excited about taking over a tech transfer office at a field center like Johnson Space Center, where we do so much great work and really trying to help bring this technology to terrestrial applications and markets here on Earth. Just by way of background, I'm sure many of our listeners are aware that NASA is the U.S. government agency that oversees U.S. space exploration and aeronautics research. And NASA was actually created way back in 1958 with the passage of the National Aeronautics and Space Act. In 1952, NASA actually established a program to transfer space-related technologies to the private sector. What many people might not know is that NASA is actually headquartered in Washington, D.C., and it has 10 field centers that are spread across the country. Now, these field centers conduct research in a whole host and variety of different areas, and each has their own tech transfer office. So in addition to the Johnson Space Center, we also have field centers such as the Ames Research Center, the Armstrong Flight Research Center, the Glenn Research Center, the Goddard Space Flight Center, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, the Kennedy Space Center, the Langley Research Center, the Marshall Space Flight Center, and the Stennis Space Center. So Chris, that finally gets me to my question. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Johnson Space Center and the types of research that take place there? Yeah, absolutely. So JSC is the home of NASA's Astronaut Corps. We're the lead for human spaceflight for the agency, and we're technically considered an operations center versus a strictly R&D type of organization. But there are quite a bit of innovations that go on at Johnson Space Center to ensure the safety and health and viability of the astronauts while they're on missions on the International Space Station research that goes into enhancing or enabling exploration activities as we look to return to the moon or go on to Mars. So there's quite a bit that goes on from an innovation perspective at the center itself. And uh, that's really what my office does in tech transfer is to help capture those great innovations in human spaceflight and then bring them out into the world as broadly as possible. Some of the core areas we really focus on as human health and performance. So you can imagine having 
astronauts flying at 17,000 miles an hour, you know, above our heads on the International Space Station. You know, there's a lot that goes into the physiology, to food nutrition, making sure that we're really taking care of the crew as best as we possibly can. Those innovations have broad applicability here on Earth for obvious reasons. And so we're really trying to capture a lot of that innovation, bring it out into the public domain here in the U.S. Um, habitation technologies around um, life support, water cleanup technologies, all of these things are, are essential to allowing human spaceflight you know, to, to go on safely. And it just happen to be things that we need here on a regular basis on Earth. That's really interesting. And so uh, given that research um, and given it sounds like you must get a tremendous number of inventions and things that come your way, can you tell us a little bit about your office and how exactly it's structured? Yeah, absolutely. We're a little bit unique. So the tech transfer office at Johnson Space Center is actually part of a larger office called the Exploration Technology Office. It's run by the center chief technologist and has three primary swim lanes. So obviously tech transfer, and then technology development, and then strategic partnerships. And we're organized this way to take advantage of the unique interdependencies of these three areas. So no one of them really stands on its own. If you look at you know, technology development, what technologies and innovations are going on at Johnson Space Center to enhance or enable future mission activities, those inventions that are occurring you know, kind of get spun into the tech transfer office. We look at patenting those technologies and then getting them out into the public domain. Um, strategic partnerships, companies come to want to work with NASA, want to collaborate and, and uh, really help spur the space program from, from their own perspectives. And again, that opportunity is there to look at how can we partner with outside companies to mature technologies or capabilities that are needed for human spaceflight? How do we take advantage of the IP that's generated there to do even more economic development activities for commercial interest here on Earth? So that's really how the office is structured at, at the higher level. Within Tech Transfer itself, my team has about 14 regular staff members, and we usually try to support one or two interns um, each semester as resources allow. But for the most part, we're structured around specializations. So we've got our patent counsel, paralegal, licensing specialists, marketing, software release, technology disclosure processes um, that we really have experts in. And we take care of the entire center population with these special specialists in place. Other NASA field centers are organized a little differently. They may have the resources to have tech transfer generalists, but they focus on particular technology domains within the center themselves. And so each org across the agency is a little bit different. That's just how we're structured at JSC. Now, I'm curious, could you tell us how exactly inventions are disclosed to your office and how you go about deciding what you might file a patent application on? Sure. Yeah. So we have a lot of methods by which we accept disclosures from the innovation community. Uh, we have an electronic new technology reporting system, which is you know, a um, website that's open to the NASA population for filing innovation disclosures at any time. It's connected to our tech transfer system that we use across the agency to manage all the data for the tech transfer activities from licensing, patent applications, disclosures, things like that. So it's all tied together. Um, but I often tell people I'll accept an invention disclosure on a napkin and crayon, right? The, the point is really just to get the conversation started. I really don't want our innovation community spending an hour or two filling out a long form just to find out that, you know, we're never going to patent their technology for a number of reasons, right? So I'd rather start that dialogue up front 
And then if we start going through the patent per, you know, process, I'll go back and ask them for the information that I need to make that happen. As far as how we decide to file patents, you know, we're very prescriptive from an agency perspective. So we do have an agency-wide tech transfer program that provides a lot of guidance to the centers and how we operate. And we do have limited resources, so we certainly don't file patents on everything that comes along. Some of the core aspects of that are clearly, you know, the patentability of the technology. Can we, you know, write claims against the tech that's going to be, you know, uh, worth filing with the USPTO? The other part of it is commercialization. So we really try not to file patents on technologies that we feel don't have commercial potential. Um, we have a contractor that supports us that does commercial assessments uh, for some of the innovations that we think are, are really compelling to the to the organization. So they'll go off and do a bunch of market research and you know reach out to people in the various communities and, and do some cold calls and see if there is actual interest in the technology and what that might look like from a commercial product perspective. They generate a nice report for us. That informs us in the tech transfer side whether or not we really want to pursue for a, a, a patent application. So that's kind of it. Some of it can be hey, what's the portfolio at the center? Are we trying to make something a little bit more robust? Are our are, are innovators moving on from, you know, particular robotics types of technologies that it isn't, you know, worth us continuing to pursue patent protection for that tech anymore because they won't support any potential license applications moving forward because they're just doing other work? Um, and in those cases, we'll put things out into the public domain. So we really do want to make sure that the technologies as broadly as possible get out into the community. We just, you know, don't always file patents on everything. Yeah. And, and that makes sense. And when you do file, I believe I read you only file in the U.S. You don't file any international applications, correct? And if so, I was curious why that is. Yeah, that's correct. So the goal of the program really is to help um you know, be kind of a return on investment for the taxpayer dollars spent at the agency doing R&D work and creating these inventions. So we're really geared towards helping spur economic growth and um, startups and entrepreneurial activities, commercial activities in the United States. So the core of what we do from a patent filing perspective is within the U.S. Now, Typically, if a company wants to do business outside of the United States with a NASA patented technology, we can help them with some of what they need to do to file for patent protection um, in other countries where their markets may be or perhaps where their manufacturing is going to occur. But those are very special cases and not things that we do writ large. Got it. And I also read that NASA has something called the public domain NASA technologies in which some carefully selected portfolios of patents and sometimes even some pending applications are released into the public domain. So that's actually very different than I think a lot of other tech transfer offices. So I was curious if you could tell us a little bit more about that particular program and how it works. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, it is, it is a little bit unique. And, and the goal, as I said, of the program really is to release NASA technology out as broadly as we possibly can. And there are a lot of ways we do that. You know, from a patenting perspective, we do those things from filing patent applications because we want to give competitive advantage to U.S. companies. And so that would be something that would be done through a traditional license agreement. But in areas where a technology perhaps has been patented, we just haven't gotten a lot of interest in it over the course of that patent. You know, we may not want to pay maintenance fees on the technology or the patents anymore. We'll put that out in the public domain before the patent expires and we'll just release it out there. Sometimes it's just a press release letting folks know this technology is available. 
You don't need to have a formal license agreement to practice the art and develop a commercial product with this technology anymore. It is part of the public domain. In other cases, we will have an entire portfolio of technology that perhaps are not gotten a lot of interest or there's just very specific niche from a commercial market perspective. Um, I think we did a, a release, gosh, probably eight or nine years ago now for propulsion technology, right? So there were a bunch of propulsion patents and technologies that we just hadn't gotten a lot of traction on. And so we just did a broad release into the public domain of those patents for folks to utilize however they would like. Um, and there are also what we consider internally public domain technologies would be things that we haven't filed a patent on and we're never going to file a patent on, maybe because there's not commercial potential, maybe because the technology is just not mature enough to warrant us trying uh, to file a patent on it. So we would release these things into the public domain through technical journal articles, conference papers that are usually done by the inventors, and we encourage them to do this kind of public release of information and innovation in a normal, you know, technical conference kind of situation. But a lot of that stuff does funnel through the tech transfer office and we help the inventors make decisions around how to move forward with their technologies. Now, when you make one of those public domain releases, do you tend to see more traction then or just, you know, does it depend? I mean, have you noticed any kind of correlation there when you weren't getting traction um, before you released it and then post-release? Uh, yeah, I think there tends to be a spike if we do a press release about it. Sure. So, you know, a lot of times we've got a, you know, patent portfolio across the agency of something like 1,400 active patents. It's a lot there for people to sift through. So if we do a public release and we do a press release of, you know, 30 patents and propulsion that we're putting out, we'll definitely see an uptick in interest, you know, but for the most part, uh, there's, it's kind of onesie twosie. It really just sure. depends. And yeah. So along those same lines, I know NASA has an entire catalog of software that I saw on your website that it also makes available to the public to download for free. And in fact, there's no fees associated with it whatsoever, which is really pretty neat. Um, can mm -hmm. you tell us a little bit more about this catalog? Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that gets a lot of attention. In fact, from Johnson Space Center, I think we had over 900 uh, executed software releases just in 2020 alone. And so it's it's an opportunity for us to get various software algorithms, models, simulations, other things that we wouldn't file patents on typically. So some some NASA field centers do do um, patent filings for software. It's It's the exception, not the rule. And so we have created this catalog that allows people access to a broad swath of NASA technologies and innovations in 15 different technical categories um, that you can go look. You know, a lot of things are in kind of a GitHub type of site where you can just go download it directly. Other softwares require a bit of an application process that we go through just to make sure that, you know, you are who you say you are. There are some rules and regulations around how certain software can be utilized. You know, we certainly don't want it to go to bad actors in an international you know, community. But by and large, it is free. Uh, there's no fees associated with it. Sometimes you will, like I said, have an application process that needs to be um, submitted. But it's usually one to two week turnaround time uh, for those requests. But yeah, it's I'd say about 30% of the innovations that are disclosed to the NASA Center Tech Transfer Offices across the agency wind up in the software catalog. Yeah, that's a pretty high percentage. Yeah, quite a bit going on in that area. Yeah, sounds like it for sure. 
So switching gears a little bit and talking about licensing, Chris, I noticed that NASA has something called ATLAS, which stands for the Automated Technology Licensing Application System, which is a one-stop shop for companies to apply for licenses on NASA technologies. Can you tell us a little bit more about ATLAS? Sure, absolutely. You know, we are really trying to modernize the application process and the tech transfer process across the agency. Atlas is really a front door tool that was developed to allow companies who are interested in licensing technologies from NASA to have a common interface with the agency. Um, so you've created a, a, an account, you fill out the application, some company information, the types of tech that you're looking for, the specific technology you want to license. Um, it's not all automated. We do have a licensed concierge who manages Atlas, makes sure that things are moving smoothly. If somebody has questions or they need some help getting connected to a field center to get more technical information from an inventor on a patent, um, he helps you know, field those types of questions. But the Atlas tool is also connected to our NASA technology transfer system, which is that backbone of data management that we use that is connected to the disclosures, the patent filings, the license applications, all of that stuff. So it really does help us be consistent from one center to the next on how we're doing the tech transfer process side of things. So things are hopefully smooth and invisible. Um, to the outside companies who are looking for patented technologies. And it just makes the data transition a little bit smoother from one field to the other from us. Yeah, it really sounds like you try and make it as easy as possible for anyone who's interested in licensing NASA technology. Yep, that is the goal, right? Again, you know, not not really looking to generate revenue from our IP. Uh, we just want to get things out there as broadly as possible. So lowering that barrier is a big deal for us. Absolutely. And I think that's a good segue for me to ask you about, can you give us an idea or a sense of how many invention disclosures, patent filings, some of these software requests and things like this that your office gets maybe perhaps in the last year? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, as I said early on, Johnson Space Center is really classified as an operations center. We're, you know, maintaining operations on the International Space Station and other crew systems and, uh, you know, getting the Orion spacecraft up and running. But we do a lot of innovation at the center as well. We do about 200 to 250 innovation disclosures per year come into the office. You know, that that ebbs and flows a little bit depending on budgets and what's going on. and from a patent filing perspective, of those two to 250 disclosures, I'd say five to 10 turn into something that we're going to go file a patent on and uh, wind up getting five to 10 issued patents per year. Um, and then the executed software agreements is probably our most prolific thing that is, in, you know, generates interest from the public, which is, I think last year we had 933 wow. executed software agreements from the center. And to put that in perspective, we had five commercial licenses. Wow. Right? So yeah. Add, yeah, the licensing of the technology itself versus the software, the software just outstrips it. And, and in part, the challenge is, a lot of times the technologies that we're creating to help um, with human spaceflight applications, transitioning those into commercial markets can be tough, right? They're not necessarily really just go out and create your commercial product and, and go forward. There's a lot of tech development that has to go from space application of a technology to a Earth-based application and commercial product. And that, that tends to be a barrier for folks, I think, a lot of times. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely agree on that point. So, 
Chris, I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you what you think is most important in managing innovations to have the greatest opportunity for success. Great question, Lisa. Uh, you know, for us, it's it's kind of twofold, right? So the innovations at Johnson Space Center and across the agency are really, it's geared towards mission success. So for us, it's this mission pull, what, what do we need to enhance or enable missions? Um, so that tends to be the technical driver internal to the agency. The tech transfer office kind of has this unique perspective where it is, how do we create commercial successes out of the technologies that have been created for these, you know, space missions or aeronautic missions? And um, it's really threading a needle a lot of times. The things that are most important in my mind, though, is are the inventors available, right? So have we patented the technology and then maybe the inventor is retired or they've moved on to other projects? They're not available to support interest in maturing that technology for a commercial product. The maturity of the technology itself can be significant. So if we haven't gotten to a point of creating workable prototypes on the on the NASA side, but we filed patents, it's a barrier of entry, especially for small companies to come in, yeah. license that technology and do something with it without a considerable amount of support or funding, right? So that can be a big thing. And we do try to really look at those things as we're considering the tech transfer processes and how we move forward with getting things out into the public domain. Um, the other aspect, obviously, is funding and the availability of resources within an organization. If a, if a large company like a General Motors comes to NASA to you know license a technology, they probably need less help from an infrastructure perspective to be successful in creating a commercial product, where a startup company may not have the lab space, the shop space, things like that. And so I think those three things is just internal resources, maturity of the technology, and then availability of the inventors. Now, Chris, I wanted to ask you a little bit about corporate partners and other partners in the role that they play in technology transfer at NASA. Can you give us some examples of the relationships between corporate or other partners and NASA? Yeah, I think we've gotten a few good ones. Um, uh, going back to my General Motors comment a, a minute ago, the robotics community at Johnson Space Center did a technical partnership and collaboration with General Motors on a humanoid robotic system called Robonaut. Um, we were interested in it for uh, crew assistance on, on orbit. So, you know, letting a more humanoid, dexterous, capable robotic system go out and do harsh environments and do EVA astronaut types of work. General Motors was interested in it for a manufacturing perspective. So it was a great collaboration and partnership where people were putting resources in and subject matter experts and created some great technology. From the, that collaboration came a lot of patents and robotic systems and components and even software that came over to the tech transfer office. Now, because we have a joint ownership between two large entities, you know, we were able to file more patents than we probably would have otherwise. Uh, we're able to look at the community more broadly for, you know, marketing and distributing the technologies out into the wider domain. So, so that is a great success story for us on how some big partnerships and collaborations may start as a technical things, you know, specifically just to mature a technology, but how it can turn into some tech transfer successes and wins. On the other side of that, we're really starting to focus more in, in my office and actually across the agency as well on partnering with incubators and accelerators within various ecosystems around the country, because those 
organizations are already tied to the startup community. They, they have investors, they know a lot of entrepreneurs, and so they may have cohorts coming through a program that are looking for seed technology, something that they want to go solve water filtration issues or air filtration issues or different, you know, aspects of what what gaps may exist in various markets. And because of these partnerships with the incubators, NASA now has access to a bunch more entrepreneurs than we would ordinarily. So we're able to seed some of these new start companies with NASA technology, which we wouldn't have probably been able to do or find those entrepreneurs on our own. So that's another great way that we're getting the word out, getting the technology out as a result of those types of partnerships. And what about philanthropic organizations? Do you have any involvement with organizations like the Gates Center, for example? Yeah, I mean, I don't have any direct connections with the Gates Foundation. Would absolutely love to. We do work with nonprofits from time to time, but I would say we don't have a lot going on with philanthropic organizations at the moment. Uh, But I think it's a great avenue for us to really help get things out there. And I'll say specifically from Johnson Space Center, because a lot of the work that we do is around human health and performance, is around, you know, filtration of air and drinking water, things like that. There is a broad applicability from a global perspective on helping communities in need with NASA technology. And I think philanthropic organizations are a great avenue to help get these technologies seeded where they'll be the most beneficial. So if you've got any connections with the Gates Foundation, let me know. I'm hoping somebody's listening from either them or a different foundation that will hear this and and reach out to you. Fingers crossed on that one. Yeah, it'd be fantastic. So, Chris, we've talked about all the different or a number of different programs that NASA has, and I want to touch on two others that you offer as well. One is uh, T2U, which stands for NASA Tech Transfer University, which is a brand new program for 2021, and then something called T2X, which is Tech Transfer Expansion. Can you tell us a little bit more about each of these programs? Yeah, they're, they're really some great initiatives that we're, we're pushing forward. The T2U has been around for a little bit, but we're really revamping it this year uh, just to put some more energy into it and start reaching out to, to a wider uh, group of universities. But what it really is geared towards is working with academic institutions to help get some NASA technologies potted with the universities. And a lot of times it's purely academic, right? So an entrepreneurial course or an MBA program maybe looking for some seed technologies for students to develop business models around or practice commercial assessments and things like that. So they can do that with a real world technology um, that you know they would have to go understand how would you develop a product, how would you commercialize these types of things. So it's purely that type of academic thing. And, and part of the motivation from us, uh, you know, from the NASA perspective is to broaden the perspective for folks to understand that they have access to NASA technologies. So folks that are going through entrepreneurial training programs at the university level, you know, are going to have a high probability of going out and starting new companies. So understanding that they have access to all this great IP, not just at NASA, but across the federal labs, right, is, is a great opportunity for us to share with them. In some cases, larger universities have you know, a lot of research going on, technical communities, they have incubation programs for their startups, you know, student startups. And so we'll put a little bit more time and energy with those universities as far as getting inventors involved in some of the programs, asking more questions, doing some more collaborative research to really help mature NASA technologies into potential products and services. From the T2 expansion program, that is really focused on helping 
broaden NASA's um, reach beyond the kind of field center. So we've got these ecosystems. So Johnson Space Center is in Houston, Texas. We've got a great connection with the community there and even the state of Texas. But if you consider a, a state like Idaho, you know, there are some federal labs there, but there's not necessarily a NASA facility there. There's not big NASA programs going on there. But we want to make sure that everybody in the United States has the same amount of access to NASA, NASA technologies, subject matter experts, facilities, things like that. So T2 expansion is all about working with emerging ecosystems, you know, where perhaps a NASA anchor tenant can really have a positive impact on spurring entrepreneurism and spurring um, startup community, or just working with communities that already exist and perhaps just want more connection to the U.S. space program. Now, speaking of startups, I know that NASA has something called Startup NASA. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and how it works? Sure. So we realized a, a while ago that traditional commercial licensing opportunities, while available to any entity, can be a little bit challenging for a startup who maybe doesn't have a lot of resources. And so we wanted to lower the barrier of entry to startup companies specifically to gaining access to the NASA technology. So what Startup NASA really is, it's about a non-exclusive commercial license deal that's kind of pre-formatted. So there's not a whole lot of points of negotiation, but the point is no upfront fees, you know, give three-year runway to the company where they don't have to pay any royalties back to the agency, no maintenance fees on patent applications. We want the startup companies to have, as you know, keep their cash in their pockets for building their teams, for developing their products, and and give them as much advantage as we possibly can while still giving them access to the NASA IP to commercialize the technology. Now, we've been talking about startups, and I think that's a good segue to talk a little bit about maybe some of Johnson Space Center's biggest success stories in terms of successful technologies. Chris, could you share some of those with us? Sure, absolutely. So a couple that come to mind um, are solar refrigeration technology that was developed by several Johnson Space Center engineers in the mid-90s. They were working on some advanced refrigeration technologies for human um, exploration activities to really remove battery systems from solar refrigeration units. So if you think about now we use solar panels to charge batteries and then whatever device like a compressor would be run off of the batteries themselves. Those batteries have um, are very heavy. We don't want to launch those into space if we don't have to. They add some complexity to the system, and, and honestly, they kind of limit the life of that particular unit. So these engineers were working on some phase change materials and some microprocessor control units to directly connect the solar panel to the compressor itself for refrigeration. They were actually very successful in doing this. We filed some patents one of those inventors several years later saw the commercial potential for this technology here on earth he left the agency started a company which is now called sundancer and licensed the technology from nasa to go create commercial product several years later in the you know 2009 time frame a nonprofit started a competition to look at vaccine storage and distribution using battery free direct drive solar-powered um, refrigeration systems. Sundanzer applied for funding to mature their technology for this nonprofit. They received that funding and went off to create a product that has actually been 
uh, approved and endorsed by the World Health Organization and is now being used globally to help store and distribute vaccines in environments where you may have regular temperatures above 100 degrees. Um, you may not be able to have direct sunlight all the time. And you know, having that ability to have a portable system that can maintain very tight control for vaccine storage over long periods of time is critical. And now they have a global market where they're actually selling these devices, you know, internationally to help store and distribute vaccines. Another one that's really kind of interesting, and this is because it's kind of a tech transfer out and then kind of spin back into the agency, is our inflatable habitat technology. Again, kind of designed and developed in the late 90s at Johnson Space Center. Our teams were looking for ways to expand, literally, the habitation volumes for space stations and habitats on the moon and Mars. So we're constrained by how much stuff you can fit in a launch vehicle. Um, but they you know, had some innovations around if you can tightly pack something up, almost like a think about a tent, right? You can pack it up very small. And then when you want to pop it up and use it, you know, you can expand it out. So they were looking at inflatable technologies. It's called TransHab was the original product and or technology or, or project. And they created this to kind of a prototype level. They were testing it in some vacuum chambers at Johnson Space Center. That program ultimately got shut down, but not before we were able to take some of those technologies and patent them. A little while later, Robert Bigelow from Bigelow Aerospace was looking at how do you create space hotels, right? And wanting to look at some technologies that gave him the same options that the NASA engineers were looking for, getting the most volume on orbit as you possibly can in the least number of launches. So he licensed this technology from NASA, took it back to his facilities in Las Vegas, had his teams mature the technology, and several years later come back to Johnson Space Center and form a partnership where their inflatable habitat you near know, the beam module is now flying on the International Space Station. So they've taken the technology that NASA developed, matured it for space applications and have brought it back to NASA as an opportunity for both him to get a test flight of the beam technology on the space station itself. And NASA gets a better understanding of how these inflatable technologies for habitats can be used moving forward. So it's a it's a really beautiful kind of partnership and story around how we created a technology. We stopped working on it. Someone else picked it up and ran with it and then kind of brought it back. That's an incredible story. That's really, really a good one. That's one of our favorites for sure. I can see why for sure. <laughs> so Chris, what would you say are your office's two biggest challenges? Um, that's a great question. I One of the challenges we're always faced with is compelling inventors to disclose their inventions to the office. Um, we've got a great technical community across the agency, definitely at Johnson Space Center, but folks are so mission-focused and oriented on just what they're doing for spaceflight and, and various applications that it's sometimes challenging to compel them to spend a little bit of extra time working with our office to disclose the innovations that they're working on. Um, sometimes folks don't even realize that we exist. Johnson Space Center is a big place. We've got a team of 14 people servicing, you know, between the contractor community and the civil servants, about a, a community of 10,000, right? So it's easy to get lost in that noise. And so really that awareness internal to the center that, you know, filing these disclosures is an important part of NASA's mission because we want to get these technologies out into the public domain. That's definitely a big challenge. We work on it on a regular basis, but it's an ongoing struggle. And I think from talking to other tech transfer professionals, I think it's pretty common um, across 
a lot of organizations is getting folks to to disclose. And I think the other part for us is, you know, as you mentioned early on, a lot of people are aware of NASA. They they know that NASA exists. They're aware of our programs from a you know space shuttle, space station. We just landed on Mars yesterday, right? So yep. I think there's public knowledge. But what people don't understand is they actually have access to NASA technologies to you know, develop commercial products and services. And so that's probably the second biggest challenge we have is that creating that awareness that we are here, we're here to help, you know, we want people to take the technologies and run with them and do great, amazing things. Well, thank you. Uh, Hopefully people listening to this podcast will realize that now, because I have to say in doing my research for this podcast, I was shocked at all that's publicly available through NASA. I I myself had no idea. So I, I think you're spot on in terms of kind of public recognition of that fact. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. We've got a pretty robust program and we're excited about it, but any, any opportunity to get it out, you know, the word out there is we're, we're all about it. So switching gears, I, I want to ask you about another very important and kind of timely topic, which has to do with women inventors and entrepreneurs. Does NASA have any programs to assist women inventors and entrepreneurs? And if so, could you discuss those in a little bit of detail? Yeah, Lisa, that is an absolutely fantastic question, and, and thank you for asking it. Uh, at the agency level, I'm not aware of any programs specifically aligned with encouraging or assisting women inventors and entrepreneurs. I will say at my office, you know, we've got some relationships with the Minority Business Development Agency. We're working with them to create some events, but it's kind of general minority business entrepreneurs that we're working with there. So it's it's, it's a broader community. Uh, we have some incubators that we work with who are also focused on minority business entrepreneurs. Uh, I would love to start a program around um, working with, encouraging, assisting women inventors and entrepreneurs. I think the tech transfer office, both at JSC and the program across the agency, is a great you know place to make that happen because we've got one foot in the agency and one foot outside of the agency. And so we really do have a great perspective on some of this stuff. Would love to put something together. Unfortunately, I'm not aware of anything that's going on in uh, very broadly across the agency for that. So switching gears again, I just wanted to ask you about what organizations maybe you and your team are involved in, uh, whether it's Autumn, LES, Bio, and what value you think they might add. Yeah, so our involvement in some of these external organizations like Autumn uh, hasn't been as strong recently as it has in the past. Part of that's resource constraints, you know, just the ability to pay for people to go to the various trainings and and events. Um, Some of it's just got a small team of folks with a lot on their plate and just haven't engaged as much as we probably should have or as much as I would like us to. Uh, we are part of the Federal Laboratory Consortium, or FLC, as well. And that's kind of the same situation as Autumn. A great, great community of folks, you know, over 300 federal labs, you know, to connect and tech transfer. And we just aren't as plugged in as we once were when we had more resources and a larger team. Um, I think there is a lot of value in these organizations as far as making sure that, you know, we are talking common language across you know, the various tech transfer offices, that we're sharing lessons learned and experiences. My team is very innovative in tech transfer. We're always looking for opportunities and ways to improve the services that we provide to Johnson Space Center, the the things that we do to engage with private companies. And oftentimes, I think some of these problems have already been solved by other tech transfer offices, and we just may not be aware of it, right? So there's that opportunity there to leverage the work of, of other tech transfer organizations and bring that to bear without having to reinvent the wheel, so to speak. 
David, I generally like to close the podcast by asking if you could have any three wishes granted or a vision realized for your office, what would those be? <sighs> three wishes. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's hard to narrow it down. You know, I think off the top of my head, a well-informed and motivated inventor community that's consistently submitting their innovations. I mean, that is that is the fuel that lights the fires of tech transfer. You know, without those innovations and being disclosed to the office, it's really difficult for us to do the rest of our job, which is to get that technology out into the public domain. I think number two is having the resources internal to our organization to help some of our inventors mature the technologies to a point where they are more uh, viable for commercialization. So again, our technologists and research and development folks are really interested in spurring human spaceflight missions. But there are these kind of tipping points where if you get that technology just over this certain edge of you know maturity, a company can come in and take it to that next step for a commercial product. So having some resources internally to be able to help certain inventors get to that point would be fantastic. And then honestly, uh, just more time in the day to leverage all the opportunities that come to our doorstep on a regular basis. I, I have so many great conversations, so many great ideas with folks that we're working with to collaborate and, and put different programs together. And and there just isn't enough time to do all of it. So those would be the three wishes. I think those are great wishes. And um, I hope at least you can get two out of three of them. I, I don't think there's going to be any more time in the day, unfortunately. <laughs> I think we would all wish for more time in the day. But um, good luck getting getting two of the three of those, Chris. Oh, thank you. Well, Chris, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Yeah, sure. So they can send me an email at chris.a.romig at nasa.gov. And that's K-R-I-S dot A dot R-O, Amazon Michael, I-G at nasa.gov. Or just go to technology.nasa.gov uh, website and you can drill down and find my contact information there. Great. Well, thanks so much again, Chris. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Great. Thank you, Lisa. It's been a blast. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks again, Chris. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.